that is a goal of mine, that we have created this environment in which people do not need to be at a level 10 crisis in order to come to us when they are struggling with different things because we they know we have the tools to help them on a variety of different things. Welcome back to the You Need a Counselor podcast. This is a show presented by Heart and Solutions Counseling Agency. We release new episodes every Sunday at 5 p.m. Central and encourage you to batch up that laundry, put away the dishes, plan for the week ahead, or do any other task that might seem daunting while you give our show a listen. You might just be encouraged to call your therapist, connect with this week's guest, or seek out those services you've been considering for a while but haven't made the commitment to yet. If you are in the state of Iowa and are in need of mental or behavioral health counseling, give us a call at 1-800-531-4236. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to You Need a Counselor podcast. This is episode 139. Uh, My name is Dr. Julie Johnson. I am the president and founder here at Heart and Solutions, Mental Health and Behavioral Health Counseling Services in Iowa. And I'm Krista Hunt. I am our vice president in charge of the behavioral health services here. And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. So we have a return guest here with us today. Um, She was one of our first guests in 2021, um, which was fitting because as a as a podcast, we were just starting to get rolling. uh, And her her role as the director of the Mental Health Access Center uh, was was just starting to get going. And so we got to hear a lot of the awesome plans that they had for the Access Center. Um, And then now we get to hear follow-up and how that's been going for the last two years. Uh, So we want to welcome Erin Foster to the show. She is the director at the Mental Health Access Center for Lynn County. So uh, if you're in Iowa, Cedar Rapids area is all Lynn County. um, And Erin Foster is the director over there. They are providing urgent and crisis care services for behavioral health, for mental health, and for substance use disorders uh, that come up in crisis situations as well. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited to be back. Uh, We had a good time two and a half years ago, so I am ready to give you guys updates to see kind of where we've been the last two and a half years. Absolutely. And the last time you were on the show, the vision was really to have kind of a one-stop shop experience. I remember Mm -hmm. talking about hot dogs and hot dog buns. (laughs) Yes, I do recall that conversation. That was a good analogy. That was a good one. We were clever there. I I agree. It always kind of sticks with me when I when I think about that, Um, because that that was the vision that you had coming in Mm -hmm. as the director and starting this uh, this access center. So fill us in. What's been going on the last couple of years there? Yeah. uh, So kind of the analogy, you can buy hot dogs and hot dog buns in the same spot. Uh, So we've had a lot going on in the last two and a half years. You know, we opened our doors in March of 2021. Um, and we've just been kind of incrementally adding services, adding staff, adding uh, community collaboration into what we're doing. And so we look very different than the last time that I was on here. Um, ultimately, we have reached a lot of the goals that, that we set out to do. Um, we have 
all but one service uh, open that we uh, intended to, to start out. And I can get into that one in a second. Um, we are open currently seven days a week, uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. That will be changing as well in the very, very near future. So uh, we really just keep looking to see where the gaps in the in the community are. What can we do to bring services to people instead of sending them out kind of on this wild goose chase uh, to see where they're going? Uh, so we, like I said, we we have all staff engaged. We have different uh, programs going on here with us. And so I, I look forward to, to talking to you about all of them kind of as we get going here. Yeah, you mentioned a wide variety of services you guys offer. Can you give us um, a little rundown of what someone can expect if they were to come there? What are some of their options? Yeah, so kind of the easiest way to, to explain kind of act, how the Access Center works and how the different programs kind of integrate in, into each other. So just, you know, let's just do a walkthrough of what it actually looks like for someone to come into the Access Center. Uh, so we are a, a walk-in facility. There's no appointments needed. Um, <clears throat> there's no referrals needed from a primary care physician. If, if you find yourself in crisis, one in which we do not define for you, everyone's crisis is different. And, you know, there's not a check the box. Are you in enough crisis today to come in if, if you feel the need to to come in and, and chat with someone and see what we can do. That's what we're there for. Uh, so every individual will come in contact with a triage counselor, a crisis counselor. And for us, uh, they are staffed by Foundation Two. So a very well-known organization here in our community and around the state uh, that does a lot of really good crisis counseling. And so that triage piece can kind of be odd for people. You know, is it is it like an ER triage or, or what does it look like? And it ultimately, the Foundation 2 staff are, are really getting at the purpose for your visit. What are you experiencing? Uh, what kind of needs do you have right here in the moment? And how can we get you connected to them? Uh, so during that triage, you're, you're ultimately having a conversation with a, a very trained crisis counselor. Uh, you could be doing different things like a suicide risk assessment. I'm going to do a brain injury assessment. All Ultimately, again, it's that conversation. What are your needs right now in the moment and how can we help you? Uh, Foundation 2 then really acts as our gatekeeper for what other programs do you get connected with? Do you really just need outpatient treatment? Are you, are you trying to figure out how to get into the mental health system uh, here and, and you don't know how to find a counselor? You don't know how to advocate for yourself. You don't even know where to start to, to get that process going. Um, also through triage, we can uh, really decide, is it safe for you to go home, to go back out into the community? And if not, we have services here uh, that individuals can stay with us from one to five days and really work with mental health staff, with direct sports staff to kind of get you stable enough that it's safe for you to go back out into the community, back to your home, back to your job, back to your family. Um, and when you leave here, then you have um, you know, a really strong discharge plan on supports that can can provide this wraparound care uh, when you're here. The, the case management work is done with you when you're here. Like I said, you, you're getting connected to professionals that that, that can help. Um, sometimes people just want to talk to a crisis counselor. They want to come in. They want to talk about the situation that's at hand, but it is safe for them to go home and they, they leave with resources. They leave with some other options, um, but they just there in that moment needed services and, and needed to talk to someone. Other services in-house, we do have a substance use counselor here now who can uh, talk to people about what recovery from substance use looks like talk about different options for treatment. They can do substance use evaluations here. 
Uh, and then just a really wide variety of other uh, outpatient services uh, people can get connected to. And, you know, we know the mental health and substance use system is a little messy and it can be scary if it's your first time. It can be scary if it's your 13th time um, with it. And so ultimately here we're to, to provide that support to get people out of the crisis that they have when they walk in our doors and really equip them with some tools to either not have that crisis be as big the next time or potentially not happen at all. And they know they have these supports already in place for them. And so the the service that you are providing really takes the place of what sometimes gets you uh, or where the emergency rooms sometimes mm-hmm get used um, because there's that gap there and mm-hmm. the emergency rooms were really filling that gap very often, um, but not equipped mm-hmm. to fill that gap appropriately. Um, and so if somebody wasn't safe at home or wasn't safe uh, being alone, um, you know, the only other option a lot of times would be go to an emergency room uh, and be there uh, for that time period. Mm-hmm. But, there in Lynn County, uh, people don't have to go to the emergency room for that. They can come into the access center um, and be able to spend that time there while things get uh, settled and safer mm-hmm. and while those plans get put in place. Um, so it's uh, I, I love that you have a substance abuse um, or substance use uh, counselor there mm-hmm. and available. And is that 24 hours a day as well? Uh, so the substance use counselor is not here uh, 24 hours a day. She's here more daytime hours. And just to kind of go back to something you said to the emergency room aspect of it, um, there's there's really two options for individuals in a mental health or substance use crisis, and it's the ER or it's jail. And so uh, access centers across the nation, and we're even starting to see this two years into our data, is they perform these really good ER and jail diversion type programs. It gives law enforcement, EMS, different people in the community other options than just you need to interact with law enforcement and EMS and, and ultimately go to the ER or to jail or there's some other options for you. And, and I will say one of our biggest partners here uh, in Cedar Rapids is the, is the hospital system because they know that individuals come in, sometimes go there because it is the only option that they think they have. But when they're going to the emergency rooms, they are getting medically checked out. Are there, are there vitals in line with what's safe for them to be discharged? And they just do not have the capacity to sit down and work with someone through a crisis. And so once they are medically cleared to go, they're discharged and nothing really in general has been done. Every once in a while, yes, there's there's amazing personnel in the ERs that can have conversations when they're not swamped and they can get connected and, and you know, they can provide them with some resources. But but the the providing of resources is very different when you have mental health and crisis staff dealing with them than ER doctors and nurses who are ultimately slammed to begin with. They are understaffed just like everyone else, and they are dealing with other situations at hand. And one of the things that I that I like to say to, you know, I like analogies. The analogies I say too is, is when my, my child has an ear infection, the option that I have to go to a primary care physician or an urgent care is a much better option than taking her to the ER. ER is for car crashes, heart attacks, and that type of thing. And I shouldn't be filling the ERs with my child's ear infection because I have other options. Access centers are these other options for individuals that are in need of crisis that then we can allow the ERs to handle the emergency services that they that they need to handle as well too. 
And so back to the substance use question. No, she is not here 24 seven. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, that we have options to is specifically during these daytime hours, um, a lot of people come in and they, they just want a conversation with a substance use counselor too. Like, what does treatment look like? What is the difference between IOP and EOP and inpatient and that type of thing? And when they are ready, that's when then our substance use counselor can be there to, to do the full ASAM uh, evaluation and then really kind of advocate for them to get to a level of care that they want. And then that can ultimately set them up for success when it comes to that too. So I had to go back on there and talk about the, the diversion piece of it as well. Absolutely. And when you said that about jail being that mm-hmm. second option, absolutely. I mean, what a great point and what a great other option um, mm-hmm. for people to have. Uh, and And there are people who will want to have not that they want to have interaction with law enforcement Mm -hmm. but that's safer than not getting treatment at all and so for so many people going through the the law enforcement and through the Mm -hmm. court systems and and all of that is actually the the only way that they get into the services that they need or the resources that they need um and so what a great way to uh again just be able to take some of that uh that pressure and and workload Mm -hmm. off of our law enforcement as well um and be able to keep keep people who are in there for mental health reasons safe Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. well uh, so what a great thing. And so are you partnering with law enforcement then in the same way that you are with the hospitals? Yes, absolutely. Uh, law enforcement, um, you know, were invited to the table even before we we opened because we knew they played a huge role. And, you know, if, if we want to have these diversion rates, obviously we need law enforcement <clears throat> and hospitals at the table. And so we work almost daily with hospitals and EMS. Um, you know, when we were writing policies and procedures, you know, three years ago, go, it made no sense for me, also home during a pandemic with little children, to sit at my kitchen table and write a law enforcement policy. And so we interacted a lot with those professionals as to like, how should this procedure, how does it work for you? You know, I can tell you how it's going to work for us and I can tell you our workflows and, and how that works. But how is it going to work so it becomes the option? The, the piece with law enforcement and EMS is, is we are battling history with what are the options that they have right there on scene and knowing that they also have to make these really quick decisions as to what they're going to do with someone to help them. And so when you're battling, again, just those two options, well, we can take this individual to the hospital and drop them off and, and, be, and be done and let other professionals take over, or we can take them to jail if it escalates to that, we are kind of with our way into, well, actually, there's a third option. And then here's what that looks like. And here's the procedure. But we knew we needed them at the table, because it needed to be their words, uh, what it how it affects their code, like, what does that mean to even um, can you put someone in the backseat of a cop car and not have them handcuffed? Like there, there was a lot of these conversations that we had to integrate our two worlds together. And the law enforcement and EMS world and the behavioral health world are very different. We speak different languages. Um, Everything 
almost everything on the law enforcement and, and EMS world and, and also including fire departments in there as well, too, is uh, very proceduralized. There are, there are algorithms. There is everything. Whereas you two know in the behavioral health world, we're like, yep, we wrote it on paper, but that's not what we do, <laughs> you know, 90% of the time because we have to be patient centered and we have to, you know, make the best role for them. And so integrating these two worlds, there's been learning curves on both sides of them, um, understanding what they are legally bound to do in situations. And, and with us also having chapter 25 that we have to run by. So we have done a lot of work with each other, training each other, bringing each other into staff meetings and roll call times and, and tours here at the Access Center. Uh, we do a lot of work in their CIT training. And when law enforcement are bringing people in from the academy, you know, we talk to them right then about there is a third option. And law enforcement and EMS referrals to access centers are some of the highest referral numbers um, that we have. And, and looking at a little bit of data uh, before logging on here, too, we're still at, uh, with law enforcement and EMS referrals, about a 76% diversion rate, meaning 76% of them would have either gone to hospital or to the ER or to jail if they had not come to us. And so that's a substantial change in the community um, for them to start bringing them to us. The other piece that we're seeing, just looking at a little bit of quarter one data of this fiscal year is not only <clears throat> have we trained law enforcement and EMS and fire to kind of advocate on behalf of the patient about, hey, I think you should try. I know you, you said you wanted to go to the hospital, but why don't we try this? We're starting to see in some of the notes that the patient themselves are saying, actually, I think I want to try to go to the access center. And so then they are bringing them that route. So we, we knew there was a lot of education on front that we needed to have with everybody, um, but we hit it really hard with these referral sources with law enforcement and EMS. And so like I said, uh, very few days go by where we are not having conversation with any law enforcement agency or EMS uh, agency here in the area. What are some of those like policies to discuss with them and like make changes to if they're coming to you versus the, mm -hmm. the um, jail or um, like trainings you've had to have with the law enforcement? Yeah, so uh, I'd mentioned the handcuff uh, piece of it. A lot of agencies, when we first started, uh, you know, when we were talking about, you know, what does it physically look like to bring someone to the access center? And like I said, we have a whole procedure. They use our Sally port in the back. You know, we're, we're really... Um, stringent on confidentiality and HIPAA on, you know, making sure that we're setting people up for success. And if being seen walking in with a cop kind of hinders that, we want to we want to kind of downplay some of those things. And so even the concept of, you know, individuals are not charged when they come with law enforcement here, although they may ride in the backseat of a cop car, they're not charged with anything. So why are you handcuffing them? Also, we know that they need to be able to either be de-escalated or be de-escalated enough to come and there needs to not be, you know, legal ramifications going on. And so why are you handcuffing them? And there was a few departments who were like, well, that that's what we do. Anyone who gets in the backseat of a cop car, we handcuff them. And so we did have a little bit of pushback uh, with that. I think ultimately there's been only one situation in the, you know, the two and a half years where we've gone out to meet with law enforcement when they come in and someone's been handcuffed. And it was a pretty quick conversation of, hey, remember, uh, that wasn't what we were going to do. Uh, and then it was it was remedied pretty quickly. Um 
other types of education uh, really comes down to having some like trauma-informed care conversations with law enforcement about, you know, they view things through different lenses, perhaps than what behavioral health professionals do, where, you know, I see someone who's just not acting normal, if you will, and, and I go to like, man, what's going on with them? Like, what are they experiencing? What, what, what I'm seeing symptoms, like what are the symptoms of what's happening where sometimes law enforcement and EMS, just because they're trained in certain ways to see, well, this is just how they're acting. And so conversations about what does trauma do? How does trauma come out in different symptoms? And, and how do you have a conversation with someone? How do you bring professionals in if if we know law enforcement do not have the capacity to be mental health mental health professionals or substance use professionals so at one point do you bring those individuals in who do have the capacity who do have the training to do it and and what does that look like on scene and and how does it look like when you're relaying information about what's going in so there really wasn't these you know hierarching trainings we had to do with them. It was a lot of conversations about, okay, you do this. This is whether it's written into code or it's written into a procedure that you have. Here's where we come in and help you. Here's where we are partners in this. If you're struggling um, because you yourself struggle um, with having a conversation with someone who is suicidal, here's where you bring the professional in who is trained to have those, those suicide conversations with individuals. So it wasn't really us just coming in and saying like, bam, this is what you're going to do for us. And we're going to completely change it, it, anything. It was really finding ways to integrate into each other's worlds. It has taken some time. Some days are much better than other days. It's it's a continuous conversation about this is a third option. Uh, what barriers do you have? You know, we wanted any time law enforcement or EMS came to be effective and efficient. So if it takes you an hour to drop somebody off at the hospital, we want to be faster. And I think, again, just pulling the data before logging on here, I think on average law enforcement and EMS are in the building four minutes. Like it is, it is a quick, you pass it on to another professional and you are on your way to, which I guarantee they are not going to the ER or booking someone in jail in four minutes. And so we really, really took value in how do we, we fit into your world and how do we help you make sure that this is an option that makes sense for you? Absolutely. Anything that can make that a more appealing yep. option uh, is, is definitely the way to go. And, and time is everything for mm-hmm. first responders. So uh, being able to uh, shorten that time that it takes mm-hmm. uh, is, is incredible. And so uh, have you, every person that uh, law enforcement is interacting with that then Mm -hmm. comes to the center, uh, law enforcement is transporting Mm -hmm. there or do you guys go out um, into the, I know foundation too goes out and does the mobile crisis work. Um, So is that kind of part of your partnership with them where they go? Yeah. So we, we physically never go out. Uh, to people. We are obviously integrated into Foundation 2's mobile crisis, uh, so they can be on scene with individuals and they can physically bring people here to the Access Center. Uh, Here in Cedar Rapids, uh, law enforcement as well as area ambulance will transport individuals here. And, you know, if they're on scene with someone, they will transport individuals here. Um, You know, there's, there's not one option, one 
good all-encompassing option for transportation. So, you know, if we get someone on the phone and it's saying, I, I want to come, I just got to figure it out. We will go through kind of our toolbox of what that looks like. Do you have a loved one? Do you have a friend that can bring you? Do you want mobile crisis to come to you and kind of start this process with it? Um, we have a little bit of funds. If we feel someone is safe to put into a cab or safe to put into an Uber, we will get them here. Uh, we also have the telehealth piece of it. You know, if if um, one of the things that, you know, I know you've mentioned is, is we're based in Lynn County, but we are a regional access center. And so we we really do focus on our mental health region that we're in, um, but we have taken people in from all over the state. And so anytime we can utilize, we feel like it's a good option to utilize uh, telehealth services, we will do that then. And, and that can even be a quick like eyes on individual uh, that we want to physically see see and have a conversation with. It's how we have kind of integrated into some of the rural hospitals in the area where if they have someone that presented at the hospital, they think the access center is a good option for them. They will call us and say, you know, we don't want to send someone from Manchester if we don't really know kind of what the options are. Can we do a quick telehealth triage and we will, you know, get on a computer, on a phone and, and do that triage. And then we can work with the hospital to be like, yep, they, they are a good fit. We want to place them into stabilization. Let's figure out transportation. Let's get them here. So we have lots of options. We never have like one good uh, trans. I, I wish we did. I wish we had, you know, a vehicle that could go and pick everyone else. It'd be a very busy vehicle. Uh, that's for sure. But we have lots of options and, and we really do try to figure out, you know, as quickly as we can, how do we physically get you here if that's the need that you have? And I know you mentioned it could be like any type of crisis where somebody might yep. want can you give some examples of like the most common ones people might come in for? You know, we have a lot of kind of the basics that we see, you know, people struggling with depression or anxiety. Um, we deal a lot with suicide ideation. Um, we have seen more so, you know, people always ask me, what are your pre-COVID numbers? Well, we opened right in the middle of the pandemic, so we don't have pre-COVID numbers. Uh, but we have seen a lot of people who, um, you know, will say to us, I don't think I've ever experienced this before. I, I think it's depression. I think it's anxiety. But, you know, I don't have a clinical diagnosis. I've never seen anyone before. Um, you know, kind of going back to my prevention background too, we capture a lot of data. And one of the pieces that that we do ask is if, you know, if we didn't exist, what would you have done? Would you have gone to the ER? Would you have called 911? And we have about 30% of people that said they wouldn't have done anything because they've never done anything before. And so we are really capturing, you know, a, a good percentage of people who, aren't coming in with their, you know, they already have their prescriber and they already have that their counselor that they're seeing and they just found themselves in crisis. It's really the first time that they're like, man, I should go talk to someone. I should, I should kind of experience. So there is a wide spectrum of people coming in from, uh, I'm just really feeling something uneasy and I don't know what it is. And I don't, again, I don't know how to, to get into the mental health system to people who have years of experience uh, with mental health and, know that this can be an avenue, uh, whether or not they have a prescriber already or a counselor already, like right now in the moment, they need to talk to someone and they can't do that with their, their individual person that they are already integrated with. And so we have the basics, you know, depression, anxiety, suicide, and that type of thing. But then uh, every time I say things have been kind of normal and calm, we get a, oh, well, that that's a new, <laughs> that's a new one for us. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side of that, I had mentioned, you know, growing in community partners, we realize that people do not just come in 
in a substance use or a mental health crisis in a silo where they are only dealing with depression or they are only dealing uh, with anxiety, that that we are dealing with people who um, are homeless. We are dealing with people with food insecurity. We're dealing with people who have uh, domestic violence in their life or sexual assault in their life. And so that community piece, that community partner piece to me is just as important as the services that we have here in-house. Uh, because what I never want to happen is someone to come in and and say, you know, I'm anxious, I'm feeling this way. And oh, by the way, I'm also in a domestic violence situation and us saying like, oh, well, here's a brochure for this person, you know, this person that you should call, we are getting them worked into it. And so because there's never just this one thing that seems to be going on, we want people to feel that they can come here if they're dealing with these things, but also know they're going to get a variety of other services. So it is a, uh, you know, a, a primary issue, a secondary issue, a tertiary issue. Like, you know, we know these things kind of have the ripple effect too. Yeah. And it sounds like that's where that in-house case management really mm-hmm. comes into play because there's that continued relationship uh, mm-hmm. through the case management of, you know, maybe they're, are more primary needs happening. So if there's food insecurity or housing insecurity, maybe Mm -hmm. there are those primary needs happening. Um, And then because that's a continual relationship, being able to address those primary needs and then address the other pieces um, that are coming in as well. And so uh, it's a more holistic approach Mm -hmm. that uh, because of that long, longer term case management. That's and we realize too, like, you know, people may come into us, you know, let's just say their first crisis or the first crisis, they come to us and, and we do a good job with them. We listen to their needs. We get them connected. Um, we may see them again the next day. And recidivism to me is never a negative statistic. I realize that, that some people may say, well, you didn't help them. They obviously had to come back. And I would prefer to look at it as a, no, we did help them. They felt comfortable enough to come back. And we realized that this mental health and substance use world does not just operate on one thing at a time, that there is this ripple effect of when you are struggling with mental health and substance use, that a lot of other things can fall off your plate. And so they may have come into us on day one and they're dealing with anxiety and we feel, you know, we find that they're also food insecure and we get them connected. You know, it's safe for them to go home. They go home, they think about it and say, well, if they could help me with this, maybe, maybe they can help me with that too. And that is a goal of mine that we have created this environment in which people do not need to be at a level 10 crisis in order to come to us when they are struggling with different things, because we, they know we have the tools to help them on a variety of different things. Now, Mental health and substance use still need to play a role in that. You know, I I wish I had a magic wand that I could give everyone a home and give everyone a place, a safe place to stay. And then I can, you know, make sure people aren't food insecure. Like we have the resources to help them, but I want people to feel safe and comfortable coming to us every day if they need to, because there's different things that they know we can help them with. And so although I have to report on recidivism monthly uh, to a lot of different people, I will always get on my soapbox and say, I I actually appreciate that this is a higher number because to me, it means we're doing our job and we're helping people right there in the moment. And the next day is another moment and another opportunity for us to help them as well too. And you mentioned um, you have some beds available where people can stay there then if there's a need. Um, How many beds do you have available? And is that common that people do end up staying there? 
Yeah, um, I want to say on average, probably a third of the people who walk through our door actually end up staying with us for a couple of days. Uh, so currently we have eight beds available for crisis stabilization. We have gone up to 10 uh, and that there's a lot of different factors that come into that acuity level of everyone else who's here. Obviously, what our staffing pattern looks like is someone discharging in a couple hours. And so we can put this individual in here too. Um, you know, the state mandates that we can't go over 16. And because we have a lot of different services here that utilize bed space, we do kind of have to um, figure out how many in each program are we going to have going? Um, one of the programs that I had mentioned uh, earlier on that's not open yet is actually a community-based withdrawal management program. Uh, and so detox in the world, uh, of, or another term that's used for it, um, they will also take some of our bed space. We don't have that program up and running yet. We're going through the process of getting licensed for it. But when that becomes open, uh, then we'll kind of have to determine in kind of a, a swing bed type situation, how many people do we have a need for uh, stabilization versus people who are in withdrawal management and go from there. But ultimately, we can never go over 16 uh, individuals here staying for more than 24 hours. Um, we do have uh, a couple programs that are less than 24 hours. So we actually don't have to count that bed space. Uh, we have crisis observation, which is a less than 24 hour program. Uh, and then we also have a sobering unit. So those individuals that are intoxicated, uh, probably hands down our biggest jail diversion program. Um, most of the time they're brought in with law enforcement. These are individuals that would have potentially been charged for things like public intox and trespassing. Um, they stay with us for less than 24 hours being monitored to make sure that there's not a medical intervention needed <clears throat> due to their intoxication. But because it's less than 24 hours, I don't have to count those beds in my total. Yeah, I I love what you said about uh, recidivism. I think it just uh, your philosophy on it helps. Uh, mm -hmm. I think further validate the uh, the wide variety of what you guys consider a crisis and uh, how wide that spectrum is. Um, because I I studied my undergrad is in criminal justice, and so uh, I studied to be in law enforcement or to be an attorney, um, and ended up doing my master's in counseling because there was a very strict line. There was a yep. solid line. Yeah, it, big old line. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> it was like you pick one, you got to pick one. Um, and I picked uh, rehabilitation and counseling, um, and so that communication that you're talking about between departments, um, you know, everybody wants to help and what that help mm -hmm. looks like between the different, uh, between mental health and, and uh, even the, um, the shelter systems mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, law enforcement, hospitals, the shelter programs, um, just being able to have that communication between you guys so that you know uh, that the access center is an option for people who might, who might come to the shelter also mm -hmm. um, and have other mental health or substance use uh, needs that the shelter can't provide or can't support. Right. Um, and so being able to uh, take over that, um, that need as well is huge. Um, and for recidivism, it, because the center is not, okay, you come here and we fix you. Yep. <laughs> it is okay, you yeah. come here. We would be something doing something way wrong. Right? Like, <laughs> be here. Like, yeah. You know, in order to not have any recidivism, it would have to be that kind of model or expectation, which yep. wouldn't be 
realistic. No. That's not real no. life because we're talking about humans. Um, yes. and we're not human talking behavior. about yes. Yes. Yeah. Human behavior. Um, and so, you know, yes, if you bring your alarm clock into a repair shop and mm-hmm. you have to go back to that repair shop a month later with that alarm clock, okay. Recidivism. We don't really yep. want that in that situation. Uh, however, humans are so dynamic, have so many different needs that surface day to day to day. Um, mm-hmm. And you have such a variety of different services and ways to implement those services, that it makes sense that somebody might come back uh, and might come back and might come back and utilize those services. Right. And I think that that is something so unique about us. You know, we have, you know, you know, it's a Lynn County program, Lynn County is the one who oversees it. Um, but, you know, having five partners here uh, in the Access Center, too, that are truly working together to come up with one or multiple plans uh, for an individual and not have, you know, bop them around the community to do so. Um, but the piece of recidivism that I think is just amazing to see <clears throat> sometimes is let's say you have an individual comes in. They stay with us, you know, obviously through doc- all the documentation that we do here, we can see, you know, what were their goals and and what happened when they worked with the mental health professional and, and here's the discharge plan. So then when they come back in, again, perfectly fine to come back in, we can continue it then. It's not yet, yes, you have to go through triage, you have to, you know, go through the admission process again, but then then you have the conversation of, okay, you were here a couple weeks ago, here's where we left off, here was the plan, where are you in that plan? If it didn't happen, what were your barriers? Like what happened? And so it's not just this like choppy, okay, I came in, you know, back to the urgent care analogy. I came in with an ear infection, you gave me meds, it didn't work. Now I'm back with an ear infection and we're redoing everything all over again. Again, we are having this continuous conversation, realizing that we are working with humans, different things can happen, different triggers could happen, your environment could have changed, your support system could have changed, all of these pieces could have come out, you could have you know, not disclosed something, let's say you were here, then you chose not to disclose as you also have a substance use disorder, you go home, and now you're working on these things. But now the substance use disorder piece is coming into play. We have this continual story on you that we just pick it up when you come back on and we move on. So even how staff work together, you know, we'll have someone come in and and go through triage, they meet criteria to stay, they will go have a conversation with the ad health staff and say so and so is here they were here last week here's kind of looked how they discharged what do you want us to kind of document what their goals are who like what do you, how do you guys want to function with this too and so not only is there's this warm handoff continuation of care among the service providers that are here we can pick up exactly where we left off the last time you were here and move forward and so you are just building your story with us every time you come and we add more layers and we add more supports and if you identify a barrier we help you get over it like you know that type of thing that to me is one of the beautiful things that we can provide people here that i don't think you get in a lot of other medical facilities that are out there right now really not in the behavioral health uh, circuit as well that that you can just continue on and work. Yeah, it it feels like the difference between your primary care physician who has, you know, maybe you've had that primary care physician mm-hmm. since you were born. Some people mm-hmm. have, right? And so, uh, you know, you go to, you might go to urgent care, you might go to a doctor's appointment in that 
office, you might not even mm-hmm. see your primary care person for a rash on your leg or yep. a sickness or an ear infection, but you're pro- you still continue to work with your primary care physician mm-hmm. because they are the ones that are case managing your yeah. situation. They are the ones that are holding your medical history and your story. Um, yep. And they are the ones who can go back and say, I we tried this. Mm -hmm. So now let's try this, right? They can go, okay. Oh yeah. Four years ago, we tried this medication Mm -hmm. and that had these symptoms. So let's try this other uh, resource or possibility. Um, And so it's kind of, it is that difference between Mm -hmm. ER situation or just going to urgent care because my, I fell off my bike um, versus your primary care physician that maybe you see once a year or twice a year. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And we all know that's just a better way to handle people's health. You know, urgent cares are great, great, quick cares are great. Uh, they have their roles, but this, we know it is such a better way to deal with people's health when you can have this continuation of different things. And although we are set up logistically to function, you know, like an urgent care, meaning you can walk in and that type of thing, that's not actually how the services are provided here um, when individuals are kind of established with us and, and keep coming back for services. So what's next for the Access Center? I know you mentioned hours might be changing. Yes. So what's that going to What be? is next? So I'd mentioned uh, withdrawal management. That has been a huge lift for us. Uh, I, I believe I mentioned this uh, two years ago. So there's not actually a community-based uh, withdrawal management license in the state of Iowa. So we will actually be licensed at a 3.7 level, which is an inpatient level uh, with uh, a few exceptions to policy and different things. And so we are a very heavy lift uh, taking on being uh, licensed in that way from HHS. Uh, probably our, our biggest update is, you know, the ultimate goal was obviously being open 24-7 and we have reached staffing uh, where we finally have that going. And so on December 1st of uh, this year, we actually will be open 24-7, which means uh, that that front door tries to crisis triage piece uh, will be available to people uh, 24-7-365. Like I said, which was a goal. I'm sure I talked about that two years ago. Uh, We are reaching that now. So where we have some of these kind of band-aid fixes of what do people do when they're in crisis and our front doors aren't open, all of them will be taken away and we will have, you know, one phone number, uh, one way to come in, you know, all of these different things. And so we are very, very excited about that. We know it's a community need. We know it's been, we've been talking about it since we opened our doors. And so I am, I am very excited to kind of announce that to the public here that, that, that will finally be happening. Very, very exciting. And so that'll be for walking in mm-hmm. the facility is open and it will be for calling in. Yep. Uh, as well, 24 absolutely. hours. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. We still get a lot of people who uh, do just kind of call and do some consultation. You know, we're still fairly new, uh, still kind of figuring out how, we, what does triage look like and what do services look like? So we do, we still do a lot of consultation over the phone before individuals come in. And so having that option alone, you're, you know, you're, you're at home, it's 2 a.m. You're kind of trying to figure out what to do, being able to call the access center and have a conversation with them. Now that does not take away that individuals shouldn't be calling 988 or be calling like different crisis lines at all. They will obviously connect you to us if that's the need that you have too. But if you have really specific questions about the access center, what we do or that type of thing, yes, our our foundation two staff can answer the phone now uh, starting December 1st, 24-7, 365 and have that conversation with you. 
even somebody considering coming in mm-hmm. to be able to call first and, and see, yep. right. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and then go confidently uh, towards yep. the center, um, I think is a great thing. So wonderful. How exciting. And then uh, you had mentioned one other service that um, was going to be coming Uh soon. What was that service? Uh, so our withdrawal management, our detox okay. program was the one uh, that it's kind of our last on-site uh, program that will be coming soon. <clears throat> and we hope it will be in this next year uh, that we'll be able to provide that with that. So in community-based withdrawal management looks a little bit different. You know, it's not connected to a treatment center. It is, you know, a very harm reduction approach. It's a you know, if if you go through the program and you still do not want to go to treatment or you're just not ready for that type of thing, you know, we have safely gotten you through the medical withdrawal piece of it. And then it's, you know, ultimately up to you what, the, what you do with it. And so it's uh, rare in the state of Iowa that it's not connected to a treatment facility, meaning you go through it ultimately to get into a treatment facility. Uh, and so it's it's just a different approach uh, to really kind of working through what people's life and recovery looks like. Okay. So it gives that, that step that's kind of mm-hmm. between, yep. okay, I'm coming in and I'm doing a, a detox for less than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that next step being, I'm going to go to inpatient mm-hmm. treatment or go to a treatment program. This gives that step that's kind of in between. In between. Yep. The in between step. Now, I mean, you are interacting with a substance use counselor when we're here, you are interacting with a, with a medical profession when you are, when you're here. And so that, that concept of someone would go to treatment is fairly high. Um, but it, it, it is not a guarantee. And, you know, we also know from the substance use side of things that, um, you know, the stages of change are real strong. And so if someone is not to the point in which they feel they can be successful and, and recovery is the, the ultimate route that they want to go, we know ultimately it's setting them up for failure in treatment and, and beyond. And so it's an option for them to safely detox from whatever substance that they're on but then also get them prepared and have conversation for recovery or treatment and recovery, but not shove them into it, if, if that makes sense too. So it's like I said, we we want to keep our philosophy that we have here, which is very, you know, it's the program's 100% voluntary. We have a very strong harm reduction approach to different things. We are patient-centered. And so that also includes withdrawal management that historically is a, this is what you do to go to treatment. And, and many treatment facilities will not admit individuals who need to go through detox first, Um so we will get them through the medical aspect of it, but ultimately it is still their choice. What happens next? And it seems like a continuation of that autonomy, just kind of all the way yep. around. Um, if law enforcement is the one doing the referral to the access mm-hmm. center, there's still that choice. You can absolutely, go or absolutely. you don't have to. Um, there's that that choice. And I think sometimes that is a really big barrier for people um, who are in, in crisis and there's a safety mm-hmm. component, mm-hmm. not going to the emergency room, for example, yep. because if the reason they're going to the emergency room doesn't have to do with the substance use disorder, mm-hmm. but then there that becomes part of it. And then there's that feeling of, well, then I'm going to lose my choice of yes. whether I get that or not. Yep. Um, and this is a way to maintain that autonomy, but give the options um, yep. in 
maintain that person's physical safety as they're going through that. And then they can choose uh, what to Absolutely. do. I will still say one of the number one questions we either get in person or on their phone is, am I locked in here? Like, no. And we will, we will physically show them that like those doors are not unlocked. If at, at any point you feel that this is not going well for you or that this isn't where you want to be, you can discharge at any time. We will attempt to work with you and attempt, you know, if, if your safety uh, is a concern or, you know, that type of thing, we will attempt to kind of talk you into staying with us for those reasons. But ultimately, if someone is here and on day two, they're like, this isn't where I want to be. This isn't what I want to do. It is completely voluntary. And none of these doors uh, lock any individuals in here. Awesome. So if you could give a suggestion to somebody on the fence about either starting counseling or coming into the Access Center for help, what suggestion might you give? I think the most basic thing is, is give us a shot. Uh, and if anything, uh, you can have a really good conversation with a crisis counselor about different options that you have at hand. You know, even if as you go through triage and our recommendation for you is that you stay with us or that you get uh, connected to these services, it is 100% your choice whether or not you do it. And so if you are on the fence or you're just really not sure call us, come in. We want to have conversations with you. We want to help you learn to advocate for yourself or learn to kind of figure out the system. The system is messy and we know that it's, it's still messy for us too. We know that. Um, but if you're on the fence, at least pick up the phone and have a conversation with us or come in and, and we would love to kind of see what we can do for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Erin. So uh, if you are in Iowa and particularly in the Lynn County area, um, go ahead and visit the Access Center. You can uh, check them out online too at www.lynncountyiowa.gov forward slash it's 1423 forward slash mental health access center. Uh, and that website is linked in the show notes uh, as well as the phone number. So you can uh, give them a call, drop in on them uh, in person, uh, or if you have transportation difficulties. Um, I, I didn't know that either. That's a, a great resource that if you do have difficulty getting to the access center, um, you don't have to go through law enforcement. You can mm -hmm. contact um, them directly and they can help you uh, get set up for transportation. So wonderful, wonderful resource. We're so glad for the work that you are doing out there in Lynn County, Erin, and we thank you so much for coming back on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was great to come give you an update again. I'm Erin Foster, and I need a counselor. Awesome. And I'm Krista Hunt. And I'm Julie Johnson, and we need a counselor. So do you. Thank you for listening to the You Need a Counselor podcast. We are so grateful that you're here. Now, we want to hear from you. Text us or give us a call at 515-650-3231. You can also find and connect with You Need a Counselor on Facebook and Instagram. If you've enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to like, review, or leave a comment, as all of these things help others to find and benefit from the podcast as well. If you're in the state of Iowa and interested in mental health counseling or behavioral health intervention services, give us a call at 800-531-4236. And if you're a provider seeking play therapy CEUs, you can find us on patreon.com slash you need a training. We'll see you for the next episode Sunday at five.